The time is now. Volume One, Episode Three. This is Employment Law Now, and I'm Mike Schmidt, your host for this still new podcast. I'm the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at uh, Cozen O'Connor, and thanks so much for coming back to listen. I have a few interesting labor and employment issues I wanted to discuss with you today, uh, and then I'm going to have a very topical guest discussion for you. Scott Betridge will join us to talk about all things immigration where things are right now with President Trump's immigration agenda, uh, and where things might be going for employers. But let's get started right away with our Noteworthy Now segment. There are two developments that will likely have an impact on employers moving forward that I want to talk to you about today. The first has to do with President Trump's second attempt to pick a secretary for the United States Department of Labor. You'll remember that he originally chose fast food CEO Andrew Puzder, After a lot of partisan tweets and cries, uh, Puzder withdrew from consideration back on February 15th, interestingly, one day before his confirmation hearings were about to start. Uh, But President Trump has now tapped former U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta for this important cabinet position, and he would be the first Hispanic member of President Trump's cabinet. Uh, Mr. Acosta is much more accepted, I think, from both sides, less controversial, maybe because there aren't so many potential scandals that have come out, at least not yet, uh, as they did for uh, Andrew Puzder. There still are, however, a lot of unknowns with uh, Acosta's positions on many of the hot-button issues that the Department of Labor is going to be taking up, uh, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's the overtime regulations and exemption issues. Uh, He seems to be much more of a moderate, mainstream appointee, He has, on the one hand, fought for religious freedom, though he is most likely still going to be pro-employer in his leanings, certainly much more pro-employer than the past administration and the prior DOL agenda. He is likely to get confirmed, I think, which will then shape or at least reshape the Department of Labor's agenda for years to come, uh, and particularly for employers. So we'll keep you posted on how things are going with the confirmation hearings. The second noteworthy now development I want to discuss with you involves a very significant issue of joint employment. It is certainly a very big deal in so many industries, uh, whether it's hospitality or restaurant or in the construction and staffing industries. Joint employment uh, continues to make news and continues to be a real big problem for employers. Many companies, as you probably know, enter into some kind of arrangement with a um, third party who the company believes is going to be exercising the greater control over a particular group of workers, whether it's a staffing company that uh, the, that your company or the employer has um, ceded all control over the employee to, whether it's a franchise or franchisee relationship, the employer, your company, goes in with a certain kind of expectation that it would not be considered the employer for purposes of a future lawsuit. 
The problem is a lawsuit does come or administer an administrative complaint gets filed and now all of a sudden there's exposure for both the company and this third party on the grounds that both constitute joint employers and are both potentially liable for the employment law uh, at issue. The real problem here is that we're seeing so many different tests in different contexts. There are joint employer rules and standards for Title VII cases where we're dealing with discrimination, harassment, or other workplace environment types of issues. The NLRB, the DOL, they all seem to have their own tests. And now what we're also finding is that there are different tests being adapted um, by different courts. Well, the first circuit, the fourth circuit, I'm sorry, the fourth circuit court of appeals just issued a decision, and the case is called Salinas v. Commercial Interiors Inc. Um, that is real significant, not just if you are a, a company that works in the jurisdiction covered by the fourth circuit, um, but because this particular decision may uh, end up being followed by other courts, depending on how things progress. But again, the case name is Salinas v. Commercial Interiors, Inc. Other courts have developed multi-factor tests to decide if there is a joint employment situation. They've referred to it uh, alternatively as either an economic reality test or an economic dependence test. The Fourth Circuit basically rejected those tests and instead developed a list of six non-exhaustive factors that are really based on the Department of Labor's own regulations that were issued last year, which focus on whether the two entities are, quote, entirely independent, end quote, whether they are completely disassociated with each other as entities. And let me read you the six factors, which again are a non-exhaustive list that the Fourth Circuit has created, um, and if any one of them uh, are found to exist, the Fourth Circuit says that uh, a joint employment situation can be found. So these non-exhaustive uh, factors are, number one, whether the joint employers or the so-called joint employers determine, share, or allocate the power to direct, control, or supervise the workers, whether the uh, entities jointly determine, share, or allocate the power to hire or fire the worker, or modify at least the terms and conditions of the worker's employment, the degree of permanency and duration of the relationship between these two entities, fourth, whether through shared management or some direct or indirect ownership interest, one of the entities controls, is controlled by, or is under common control with the other entity, Five, whether the work is performed on premises owned or controlled by one or more of the entities, the putative joint employers, either independently or in connection with one another. And then lastly, six, whether the entities jointly determine, share, or allocate responsibility over functions ordinarily carried out by an employer, such as things like handling payroll, providing workers' compensation insurance, paying payroll taxes, um, or otherwise providing the facilities, equipment, tools, or materials necessary to complete the work. Again, it's a very significant decision coming out of the Fourth Circuit. Uh, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals covers the states of Maryland, Virginia, North uh, Carolina, South Carolina, and West Virginia. 
So uh, on the one hand, it's certainly significant for those of you who have operations in those jurisdictions. On the other hand, if you don't, don't just ignore this decision, but keep abreast of what's going on in the joint employment world, uh, because this Circuit Court of Appeals decision out of the Fourth Circuit may be something that's followed. So the takeaway from this case, I think, is um, the common denominator that the question will be posed, has your company sufficiently disassociated itself from another person or entity on the particular issue, whether it's a Title VII issue uh, dealing with workplace environment or whether it's a wage and hour issue dealing with um, salary, compensation, overtime, classification, those kinds of things. Has your company sufficiently disassociated itself with the other entity being considered the potential joint employer on the issue um, at hand? I want to move now to our Trending Now segment uh, to talk about a trend that really has been flying somewhat under the radar in comparison to a lot of the other newsworthy employment law issues that we tend to hear and read so much about. But I don't think it's going to be flying under the radar much longer, and that is uh, restrictive covenants. Restrictive covenants is an interesting area because people like to use certain terms, I think, interchangeably. For my purposes, restrictive covenant is really a common umbrella term for several concepts. It includes contractual provisions requiring confidentiality, as well as non-competition, as well as non-solicitation of customers and clients, and non-solicitation of employees. So when I use the term restrictive covenant, I tend to mean all of these types of contractual provisions that tend to govern the behavior of employees post-termination. And what is trending now uh, that I think is not only interesting, but also something that will have and continue to have a very significant impact on all of you as well, uh, is that there have been developments both on the employment side when it comes to dealing with contractual provisions between employers and employees, as well as contractual provisions between one employer and another employer that might affect employee mobility. Because again, employee mobility, that's really the key here, and that's really uh, what has prompted so much action on the federal and state level that I'm about to talk to. So let's look at that first on the employment law consideration side and, and the kind of government involvement we have seen in the past year. Back in May 2016, last year, the White House, obviously the prior uh, administration, issued a report that was entitled Non-Compete Agreements, Analysis of the Usage, Potential Issues, and State Responses. The White House report unabashedly characterized itself as a starting place to have further investigation of what it deemed to be the problematic usage of institutional factors that have the potential to hold back employee wages, and in this case, that was non-compete provisions. The White House's May 2016 report identified certain principal problems with non-compete agreements. Uh, you can certainly email me or contact me if you want a copy of the report. I don't have time to go through all of the 
um, uh, comments in detail, but suffice it to say, the issue that the White House was having was really the Davy and Goliath situation, where there was so little leverage, if any, on the employee side, and they're being forced, according to the White House, to sign very one-sided, very onerous non-compete agreements by the employer for uh, the terrific consideration of being able to continue in the job that they have already been working in. The purpose of that May 2016 White House report appears to have been to set the stage for further action. And so five months after that, on October 25, 2016, the White House issued another statement, this time a call to arms to encourage states to take action where federal executive or federal regulatory action wasn't going to be able to succeed because non-compete agreements and non-compete issues are generally a creature of state law. What happened after that October 2016 call to arms was that state officials really heeded the federal call from the White House. So, for example, states like Oregon, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Illinois, they joined California and some other states to actually enact legislation now limiting the use of non-compete agreements and, in some instances, banning them outright, either completely or for certain types of employees and certain types of industries. Other states, such as New York, Washington, and Idaho, for example, uh, have proposed non-compete agreement legislation or announced that they will be doing so. For example, New York's Attorney General uh, has been very active in investigating and redressing what he has deemed to be unconscionable non-compete agreements by entering settlement agreements, entering into settlement agreements with major national companies in just the past year alone. Uh, the New York Attorney General has also stated very publicly that he will be introducing legislation in New York this year, in 2017, that will address the salary threshold required before an employee can be required to sign a non-compete agreement, requiring non-compete agreements to be provided before a job offer is extended, again, so they can give employees the option of signing them and taking the job, before they potentially give notice to their prior employer or deciding not to sign the non-compete agreement and either staying with the current job or continuing on with the job search. Um, part of what the New York Attorney General has also said that uh, the legislation will include is uh, a note on the extra consideration that should be paid to employees for signing non-compete agreements and what the permissible temporal scope may be for certain types of restrictions. So it really is imperative that your company become familiar with current as well as any future developments in this non-compete area because so much is happening and it really is a jurisdiction by jurisdiction um, development. We will do the best we can to keep you abreast on uh, how things are changing because they are changing rapidly. The second part of this, as I said, uh, comes uh, not in the employment area per se, but in the antitrust area. And that is, again, not dealing with non-competes on the employer-employee front, but on the employer-employer front. So back also this past October, October 20th, 2016, the federal FTC and the Department of Justice released a joint document entitled Antitrust Guidance for Human Resource Professionals to explain how antitrust law applies to employee hiring, compensation, and mobility issues. Again, like the other one, if you're interested in checking out this document, please email me, call me, uh, let me know, and I'm happy to send you a copy. 
But what this uh, FTC and DOJ guidance does is it advises pretty clearly that going forward, the Department of Justice is going to be conducting criminal again, criminal investigations of companies who agree with one or more of their competitors to fix wages or other terms of employment or who enter into no poaching agreements by promising not to recruit the other company's employees. And that latter practice tends to be a very common practice, uh, I think, between a lot of companies, whether in conjunction with settling a lawsuit or just generally outside the context of a lawsuit. But the Department of Justice is stating very clearly that it is going to be going after employers who enter into these types of no poaching agreements. And again, the kicker here is that it's going to be a criminal investigation, not necessarily just a civil investigation. And the Department of Justice explains that those types of non-poaching agreements, in its view, have the damaging effect of eliminating competition in the same irredeemable way as agreements to fix the price of goods or to allocate customers uh, in the antitrust world. So companies that compete for employees may also be deemed competitors according to the Department of Justice, even if the companies don't compete for the same products or services in the same markets. The October 2016 antitrust guidance makes very clear that illegal no-poaching or wage-fixing agreements, um, they don't have to be formal, they don't have to be written, they don't even have, have to be even spoken in order to be subject to potential antitrust enforcement if there is sufficient proof of these types of agreements. So we will talk in future episodes about non-competes um, and these employment and antitrust issues in some greater detail. But from a takeaway standpoint, you really should ask yourself these three questions. One, does your company truly want or need non-compete agreements, given the nature of your industry and the nature of your business model? Two, if you do believe that you want or need non-compete agreements, Determine for which positions and employees you truly need a non-compete agreement and why. It is much easier to be able to um, persuade a court that your non-compete agreement should be enforceable if there is an identifiable interest, a business interest that needs to be protected, as opposed to you just saying, well, we do it for everybody or everybody does it. If you can prove that there is an identifiable, valuable business interest being protected by this agreement in a narrow form, a court is more likely, depending on your jurisdiction, to enforce them. And that goes to my third question to ask yourself. If you do decide that you want or need non-compete agreements for certain positions and employees, determine whether your particular agreements that you use are drafted in a way that most narrowly and reasonably protects your company's interests without unduly harming or punishing the employee or the general public. So as I said, we will continue uh, to update you on what I think is going to be a very interesting trend dealing with restrictive covenants across the country. Finally, we move to this episode's Expert Guest Now segment. Uh, Scott Bedridge heads up Cozen O'Connor's immigration practice in our Miami office. He represents corporate clients and immigration matters with a focus on global workforce mobility issues. And he's also very heavily involved in non-immigrant visa issues, permanent residence, labor certification, EB-5, and I-9 review and compliance issues, among others. He has graciously agreed to come on and talk to us about where things are in the immigration world as it impacts employers. 
Scott, thanks so much for uh, coming on to the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Sure. Um, so unless everybody is living under a rock, we all know that immigration issues have been at the forefront of uh, all the political discussions, certainly during the recent presidential campaign um, and then since President Trump took office last month. First question I have for you, aside from all of the academic or even the moral dilemmas that uh, everybody's bouncing around, what kind of real impact are you seeing President Trump's stated immigration agenda having on employers, and what kinds of issues are you talking about with your clients? Um, you know, there's, there's a bunch. Um, you know, certainly immigration grabbed the headlines about a month ago. I believe it was January 27th. Uh, President Trump issued an executive order. Uh, which, among other provisions, uh, suspended visa entry for nationals from seven predominantly Muslim countries for a period of about, of, uh, I think it's a minimum of 90 days, and established some requirements for what they called uh, extreme vetting. Uh, basically, following the issuance of the executive order, embassies and U.S. embassies and consular posts around the world were instructed to immediately suspend issuing non-immigrant, which are temporary visas, as well as immigrant visas, which are green cards, uh, for nationals of Iran, Iraq, um, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, and Syria, the three S's there. Um, in addition, you know, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, CBP, has been detaining individuals from those affected countries who, were, who let's say, already had visas and they were traveling in transit to the U.S. Uh, before or, or contemporaneous to when the executive order was signed. So, I, you know, I think some of the issues definitely were highlighted throughout President Trump's campaign. I think historically such talk and, and, and campaign promises, if you will, were, were more campaign rhetoric. Um, <laughs> but I think most, most uh, uh, employers and employees alike have started to feel the impact of these issues. I mean, you know, we represent a large variety of international employers, small, large companies throughout every industry. We've dealt a lot with advising our aviation and transportation clients. Um, where, where we not only had issues with respect to their passengers on those transportation uh, uh, vehicles, but yet uh, how we dealt with the impact to their crew members, their pilots and staff. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, what, is, you know, what does this mean for employers who have employees of, of these nationals? I mean, what we're telling any, what we've been advising employers anyway is to simply, um, you know, restrict any travel abroad for these nationals, at least for a period of 30 days or until there's some form of, of clarity or a formal U.S. court decision, um, you know, where we understand the constitutionality, the legality of the issues, and, and something is clear. So we, we're, we're definitely not advising travel. Um, at the same time, certainly we've been advising those folks who are U.S. green card holders, who are either regularly stationed abroad or who travel to the U.S. more infrequently, uh, to get back to the U.S., return sooner than later. Mm -hmm. Now, green card holders, they're, they're exempt from the travel ban. They're not, they're not caught up in this, but yet uh, border control, security is as tight as ever. And uh, some green card holders who have been outside the U.S. for extended periods traditionally face certain issues when they come back to the U.S. They've been out for six, eight months. There's questions in general terms in terms of you know, what their intent is. Do they intend to maintain their permanent resident status? So we're trying to get them back. We advise them to come back sooner than later. Um, you know, certainly to, to alleviate those issues and any additional scrutiny that, uh, that they've seen. So obviously the federal court has upheld um, the recent stay on President Trump's uh, immigration ban order. What's the impact uh, of that stay, and where do you see things heading with the ban, ultimately? 
Well, I, I, you know, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit upheld a, a stay on the executive order. I mean, among other provisions, the executive order barred uh, refugees for up to 120 days and immediately, as I said, suspended uh, visa entries for these predominantly Muslim nationals for a period of 90 days. Uh, it basically ensures, ensures that the uh, 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 individuals, uh, you know, this, while the stay remains in place, we've been, it's, it's, it's an issue where employers and employees alike can follow our recommendations, try to bring anyone back to the U.S. as, as, as quick as they can, uh, restrict travel of those folks that are here. Uh, now, again, that certainly doesn't always meet the, the, the constantly changing business needs <laughs> of employers. However, it's definitely useful to be able to protect employers, uh, protect their employees, uh, give them somewhat of a safe harbor while the details of the program are actually discussed and finalized. And, you know, maybe some of the steps that should have been taken before the executive orders were issued <laughs> are, are actually uh, are, are finalized. Um, you know, I think, the, I think the decision from the, the, the Ninth Circuit um, – you know, rejected the government's argument that the stay should be lifted in the interest of national security. Now, you know, I, I think ultimately, uh, you know, where does that mean, where is this heading? I think that uh, Department of Justice can appeal. They can appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, right, as we all know, is clearly still one justice short. Uh, if there's ever a 4-4 split decision on the Supreme Court on the issue, that's going to leave the appeals court ruling in place. So, uh, yeah, we've also seen, I guess, um, that uh, – President Trump may be coming out even this week uh, with a new executive order on this issue. Is there any tea leaves to be read there? You know, I, 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 I definitely has been reported that they could issue a revised version at any time. Uh, you know, there's the, the pundits that say the Ninth Circuit's decision was legal garbage. Um, <laughs> those, ju those judges went through the exercise of writing an opinion only to get the outcome and, and of the issue they wanted. Um, other groups have praised the, 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 the order, but yet I think that the biggest concern is that the, the executive order really did not directly rule out on, on two provisions which were stated in the executive order. The first and probably the most sweeping provision of the Trump order was the deep cuts uh, into the amount of refugees that were allowed to come to the U.S. So the, the, the order slashed a refugee quota by more than half. And in addition, the court didn't rule on a provision that make it easier for states and cities to veto refugee placements. So I don't, I'm not saying that that's the, the only issue that could be dealt with in a revised executive order, but certainly those uh, definitely make for interesting legal arguments. And I think with so many of these legal <laughs> issues intertwined, it's hard to imagine um, that any outcome will make everyone happy. But, uh, but certainly those are, those are things that we're, we're still awaiting some guidance on. Sure. So employers are somewhat in flux right now, and uh, I guess they, they need to just uh, continue to operate business as usual when it comes to uh, overseas travel with their employees? Uh, you know, again, uh, unless you're a national of one of those countries without either a U.S. green card or having dual U.S. citizenship, I, I would definitely revise to restrict any international travel, um, at least for the next 30, 60 days until there's more clarity. Uh, again, when you're in the country, you're you're not subject to these restrictions and rules. So, so even though while the stay may be in place, and it seems like it's a it's a it's a, everything is working, I think restricting travel unless absolute business necessity or personal you know emergency, um, you know, if you're one of the seven countries, we we we're definitely advising to stick around. And there's also some proposed legislation, I think, and you might have touched on this a moment ago. There's some proposed legislation that may disrupt work visas. What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, adding to the, the confusion by the, 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 the new administration and the executive <laughs> orders, I think that, you know, Congress is joining, 
into the issues regarding immigration by considering legislation that may radically change and alter the H-1B visa program. Um, I think as most employers may agree, reform of the program is needed. Uh, but, you know, what, what type of reform exactly remains to be seen? I think, you know, the H-1B program last year, there was about 235,000 applications for H-1B status for only 85,000 H-1B numbers. Um, the Immigration Service ran a lottery system and has in the last few years run this lottery to determine who's going to get an, an H-1B with an October start date. Uh, the lottery distribution itself has been challenged in court as, uh, as unlawful. Um, but again, I think that uh, it, it, those arguments really dealt with the distribution of those visas and maybe like first in, first out kind of fashion as opposed to just, you know, uh, a, a pure lottery system. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've touched on this many times with many clients. I think definitely the first come, first serve approach is more fair. And certainly, you know, running a lottery allows just some of those uh, to cut ahead in line. But it also, if it was if it was amended a little bit, it would allow big companies to file massive numbers of petitions to to increase their odds. Uh, the case to abolish, let's say, lottery distribution alone um, could be decided any day. Uh, now, I, again, you know, the H-1B cap is, is, is the H-1B visa itself is, is the kind of the, the standard for, for immigration. These are individuals that have at least attained bachelor's degrees in a field related to the occupation and job offer being, being presented to them. Um, you know, we, we certainly work with employers in terms of advising what, are, what, what employees may be exempt from this cap and this quota. Um, there's Canadian and Mexicans who can utilize NAFTA. Australians can utilize the H3, uh, the E3. Um, you know, there's, there's, different, uh, there's different ways to get cap-exempt petitions, but we're dealing with not only are we dealing with the numbers for H-1B cap, but we're dealing with salaries and prevailing wages that Congress is looking to limit on the H-1 category, how we deal with, um, I guess, even recent graduates, STEM, STEM OPT graduates, F-1 students who have STEM degrees can get, you know, additional uh, OPT time to remain and work in the U.S. How does this impact small companies and startups? I think there's a lot of issues that, that may come out in terms of, you know, how is a smaller company going to be able to get the same, let's say, allotment of, of visas as opposed to larger companies? I think we overall we just need a system that would, would recognize that U.S. companies need to employ a, a certain level of global talent in order to remain competitive in an in, in international marketplace. I think... Um, company wants to to employ more than a, their percentage of the workforce they may be able to do that but they may have to pay a price for it so I, I think there's definitely some uh, some 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 traction on immigration overall employment immigration reform um, as I said there's a lot of different issues tied to this but h1b clearly is the area um, I mean you've got you've got bills from Zoe Lofgren you've got bills from Senator uh, Sherrod Brown from Ohio that that all deal with you know changing the cap either some of them looking to do away with <laughs> these visas altogether um, and the H1 and L1 visa reform acts they're going to reduce the amount of time um, individuals can utilize these visas uh, again I, I don't know really know how it'll all play out but there's a lot of moving parts and and certainly uh, I know employers are, are watching this carefully well on, on the things such as the H1B visa program is there bipartisan um, discussion on at least that issue, or is is that very much tied to whatever party uh, you seem to be on? No, I I, I think um, I, I I think it varies. I I don't even say it's drawn along party lines. I think it really depends on whether we're looking at this as 
as are we protecting the U.S. labor market or are we are we simply looking for cheaper labor by by foreign nationals? And and I would argue that uh, that that I think the system is currently set up to protect the market. We require prevailing wages for individuals. Companies cannot hire employees on these visas and pay them less than they would pay comparably employed U.S. workers. Um, you know, similarly, I think that. Uh, uh, you know, there's 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 so many different opportunities that I th I think related to smaller businesses and startups and and, and entrepreneurs and um, you know I, I don't I don't I don't see that that's I don't see that there's a right answer either but I think that we need we need some direction I think we need some uh, some consistency but I think I think again it just depends across the board on uh, on, on who you talk to and and what senators are proposing what changes. Yeah, and we may get some more direction or at least uh, get a better sense of where things are heading tonight. I mean, as we're recording this interview, uh, President Trump is giving his first speech to the joint session of Congress uh, tonight. So he may, as, as part of his uh, budget um, discussion and as part of his remarks, certainly may lay out um, in a little bit more detail what he plans to do on the immigration front. I, you know, I'd love to see it. I, I think, again, I, I think there's so many different components to the immigration discussion, whether it's dealing with uh, safety issues, whether it's dealing with employment-based immigration, whether it's dealing with uh, undocumented situation. I'd like to – certainly I think we'd all agree that they all need to be addressed. I don't know that in any one sweeping piece is going to capture everything, but, uh, you know, maybe one by one. Uh, they'll be dealt with. So I'm, 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 I'm as anxious as anyone to see what, what comes out of tonight's uh, discussion. Sure. And Scott, there are some new deadlines and new I-9 forms um, that are uh, out there and about. What should employers be doing with those and by when? Definitely. Um, I guess the new I-9 became mandatory in, in towards the end of January. Um, everybody knows you know, every employee must have a valid I-9 to show that they're work authorized in the U.S. And the new process, the new form, is a little bit more user friendly. It clarifies the process. It's a little more uh, uh, better technology that's been implemented into it, more the smart technology. It's going to hopefully alleviate some of the common mistakes that are made on paper I-9s. But, um, you know, the, the new form's now available online. Employers can download it and complete it. Um, I think that employers failing to complete the new form I-9 or to do that or to do so incorrectly, faces a higher amount of fines right now. So DHS uh, recently changed, uh, well, they, they finalized a rule that would increase the fees for immigration-related and I-9 and E-Verify violations. They've increased almost 100% uh, from about $110 for the least amount of violations to $1,100, and almost from about, two, I think it was 215 to about 2150 uh per I-9 violation. So I think with this fee hike, it's certainly more important than ever that employers look to ensure their Form I-9s or, or, or documents are accurate. There's proper procedures in place that they showed, uh, you know, a standard of care and proper filing and compliance when completing these for new hires. Um, I think I think that I think that's one of the biggest issues that I think we're going to see coming out of this whole executive order security, national security issue is simply that um, – there's been recent raids. There was raids up in Seattle. Um, there's been a handful of of coast to coast uh, issues that have arisen in the last several weeks. That coupled with the increases for fines for these I nine violations, I think employers need to act uh, 
Uh, we've, we've been advising employers to ensure they have compliance policies in place to reduce the risk of these penalties, to reduce the issues related to having uh, their, their forms be incomplete or inaccurate. I think that that's kind of the standard. I think we've seen that geographically a little different and some industry-driven I-9 enforcement that's been coming uh, down the pike of, of late where they're looking at, let's say, the hospitality industry or the construction industry or the agriculture industry, and they're going door-to-door -door saying, we'd like to see your I-9s. Um, every individual that is that is undocumented or doesn't have an I-9 or has an incomplete or, or, or uh, uh, doesn't have supporting documents, if you keep them normally for other employees uh, in place, they're looking at, at substantial fines. So I think that the federal government and these issues related to national security, certainly um, I, I, I see this the, an increase in this regard. And I think now more than ever, I think, uh, you know, employers need to ensure that they have their immigration ducks in a row and their compliance process in place. And these just these simple form, I-9 forms, uh, could forget about uh, the liability they cause, but uh, the monetary penalty is, is as high as it's ever been. Well, that's uh, all extremely helpful and, uh, and very practical. Um, Scott, I really appreciate you coming on today. I can't promise that I'm not going to make another request uh, down the road for you to come on as these immigration issues uh, continue to gain traction and, and build up speed. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have you back on another time and, uh, and continue the discussion. Happy to do so, Mike. I appreciate the time. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Scott. Scott Betridge, who heads up uh, our immigration practice here at Cozen O'Connor. Uh, thank you so much again for the time today. Appreciate it. I really hope you found this episode interesting and useful to you. Please continue to listen and feel free to subscribe to us either on iTunes or on our dedicated website, employmentlawnow.com. And certainly feel free to give me any feedback that you have. We're three episodes into this podcast, and we welcome all kinds of feedback, constructive, good, bad, anything that you want to hear on future episodes, anything that your company may be concerned about or interested that you want us to discuss, please let me know. We welcome the feedback, and we certainly appreciate you listening. So until next time, thanks so much, and I hope all your labor is productive.